Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. So my guest today on the Cappuccino is Fiona Connor. She went to AUT to study English and media after pursuing television production. Uh, she loves investigating human rights and justices and incidences of unequal treatments. Some of the investigations she has done, uh, the biggest one probably into bullying and mistreatment claims by Littleton Port Company workers. Uh, she does a huge amount for mental health issues. Uh, she's interviewed Paris Goebbels, Scribe, Zane Lowe, Sir Ray Avery and Rob Fife, amongst others. She was a finalist for the 2020 Voyager Awards, which I have to be honest, I didn't even know about until I started researching, and aims to inform or inspire readers through her work. I'm guessing at some stage she worked for Remix magazines because she's got lots of interesting photos with windswept and interesting people, as Billy Connolly would say. Uh, and we're also here today to talk to her as her role as the News Hub Features Editor because she's done, uh, her and a team of reporters have done some amazing stories on neurodiverse or people with autism spectrum disorder which is beginning to creep up on us as a community uh in new zealand it's about one in 100 people have got asd or uh, neurodiverse in america it's one in 59 so i'm guessing you haven't heard the podcast eh? so here we go because what i do is i have some random speed questions dedicated to speed which i think is the world's greatest police movie of all time because it's got Keanu Reeves in it, he's John Wick, he's also on Bill and Ted, etc, etc. So, my dream interview for anybody, alive or dead, would be who, Fiona? Oh, that's a tough one. Yeah. Uh, oh, 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 off the top of my head. You know what, I'd really like to sit down with someone like John Cleese and talk about his career, and then also, um, you know, the changing times, as, as we've seen, cancel culture, he's sort of become a victim of that. Yeah. I'd like to pick his brain just sort of about... the. the the, the rooms he's been in, the things he's seen, the work he's done, and um, you know some of the great people that he's got to meet along the way. Awesome. I mean, there is a range of people. Yep. There's so many great people that I'd love to talk to. Yeah, and at 3 o'clock in the morning, you're going to wake up and go, oh, I should have said this. <laughs> uh, a hidden talent that you can't use at your current workplace that you have is what? Oh... What am I good at? Does singing in the shower not not yeah, very that'll well? Work. That'll work. Yep. Count? It works. Yep, it works. That okay. has no use in the newsroom. Yeah, like, yeah, unless you bring a portable shower in. Uh, <laughs> last book read is what? Well, I'm currently reading uh, Impossible um, by Stan Walker, but I am... I think the last book I read was Chinese Cinderella. It's nice. a it's a, fr- a favourite of mine, and uh, I really like the story. Perfect. And I'm going to recommend another one to you because of all the feature that you're doing at the moment it's called The Reason I Jump oh, by okay. a non-verbal autistic Japanese boy who basically kept the diary at the age of 13 it's awesome uh, my binge watch at the moment is what? Uh, well it's a slow burn but I'm watching Vegas as they as oh, they yeah. come out on uh, from TVNZ nice uh, Binge, you know, Sex in the City. I I go through that about once a year. It's, nice, it's 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 good. True story. Never seen an episode of that. All friends. <laughs> but hey, look, that's all good. Uh, the best piece of investigative journalism you have ever seen is. Do, do you know what? There is a, there is so many answers to that, but one piece that has always stuck with me is a is a story that Samantha Hayes did, and it was at the very beginning of 
influencers when we started seeing this trend of marketing on social media via Instagram. And Sam spoke to a couple of these girls um, who were sort of emerging stars at the time. And there's this very great moment where where Sam asks one of them, um, how are viewers or, or the audience supposed to know the difference between a post that is genuinely them versus one that um, they are being paid to create? And there's this, this very delicate, beautiful moment where the girl she's interviewing looks just behind Samantha, obviously up at her publicist, and Sam says, ah, yes, the other side. And and they go into talking about the money and the remuneration side of of, um, of, of what was what we now know as influencer marketing. And it was a piece sort of before its time and a very in-depth look at, um, you know, what was to essentially evolve. I mean, if we could have sealed that rabbit hole up. <clears throat> anyway, uh, your favourite podcasts are what? Apart from this one, obviously. Yeah. Uh, do you listen to any? Yeah, I did. Well, I got quite into the Joe, Joe Rogan's one um, just because of the the different sort of calibre of guests that he had. Um, and there was there's too many to choose from. He has really interesting people from all walks of life. And yeah. I think that keeps it very engaging. That's the best way to be, I think. Uh, first concert was what? Oh, Here I we go. Say it. My first concert was Panic at the Disco. Nice, that's uh, not too bad. Yeah, Brendan Urie is a, still to this day. I actually went when they came here not too long ago. There you go. Uh, yeah, Brendan Urie is a fantastic vocalist. Uh, and he's just you don't getting, have to justify it. Getting better with time. No, he's good. <laughs> right, okay. The next James Bond is who, as far as you're concerned? You know what? I wouldn't mind if it was Idris Elba. Um, I, I think that he would he would be good. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with him. Okay, all right. So, what's COVID look like for you? COVID looked like for me uh, a lot of time to sort of think about what really truly matters. I think that that was a big thing for a lot of people, you know, sort of this um, realisation that actually our health is the most important mm. thing, not materialism or, no. um, you know, not getting swept up in social lives or, you know, putting work before everything all the time. Um, you know, I think I sort of realised how much I need to take breaks sometimes, how much I need to reset, and 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 what I actually care about, and where yeah. I want to be putting my energy. It made me really grateful for for the life that I have, and and for well, for what I've tried to create for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What's been the best part of COVID for you? The best part, I, th- I think it is those things. I think it's those lessons that you've that you sort of. The, you know, the outlook of, of, you know, especially around music events and things like that, you know, just being so grateful that we, you know, are in New Zealand, that we do have, um, you know, that we're especially now back on track. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just that, that, that greater appreciation for, for what we have has probably been the, the best thing to come out of it for me. The worst part? Um, you know, I think... I think the, there was a bit of there was a time where I sort of struggled at the beginning with just with the, um, you know, sort of the quick the quickness of 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 having to lock down and um, you know just that distance I think from from and that connection from people like your parents and and just the family and stuff like that everyone was only always a phone call away but um, adjusting to that was was a little bit difficult but you know as I say, a lot to be grateful for at the same time. Now, it's not my question, but I always ask this when I talk to people about COVID. Did you panic by toilet paper? Uh, 
No, did you, I didn't. Did you panic by flower? No. There you go. Absolutely not. Well, Ed, you're one of the no, very few then, so no, good no. for you. You know, yeah, no, it didn't cross my mind, no. it, to be honest. This, there was one lockdown, uh, the most recent one, where Auckland sort of went in, and I had to go to the supermarket anyway. And Jacinda, by the time she said, like, level three, we were already in the car out the door. We, <laughs> we realised what was happening. We thought, God, we'd better get down there. Coincidentally... May have needed to do a top up. Right, just saying. That's but that's right. it. Yeah, no, that's all good. No worries, <laughs> that's all good. Okay, so you've got an awful lot to do with mental health. Um, I've seen pictures and articles of you. Often, you've done stories on mental health. Uh, you have done features on mental health, and you also help out at various um, charity groups. You and I have got a mutual friend in Genevieve Mora and Jazz. I'm Jazz Thornton. I'm still waiting for you to come onto this podcast. But uh, what do you do for your overall mental health to keep yourself? And check because, like you said, during COVID, you kind of realised. Oh, so I know that lots of people their mental health routine has gone from being nothing to something. So, what's yours look like? For me personally, swim, swimming is really, really important. So I swim as as many times a week as I can. Generally, that's about three or four or five times if I'm feeling really active. Um, but swimming gives me a, a, an opportunity to just. It actually is the one time where I just feel like I can just stop. And just I just am focusing on going up and down. It might be boring to some people, but it really is that time where I can process everything, think about things that I want to think about, not have any sort of outside influences going on. It's really just like me and the water, and it's thirty minutes of just of just nothing else. Perfect. And that is super important. There is one more thing, and it kind of goes back to maybe an answer I should have said for binge watching. But I, wa- I watched TV <laughs> to, to like when I get home after a really big day, after I go for a swim or go to the gym, I sort of just like will put my phone aside and I can just zone out to some like generally it's <laughs> I don't want to say what show it is because it's so embarrassing. But there is a TV show I just watch and it's so like it's just mind numbing. And I just sit there and I watch it and, you know, I just don't think about anything else, Perfect. really. As my dad would <laughs> and say. And it's important yeah, it's candy to floss take for the that brain. time yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly right. So currently you're the News Hub Features Editor. What does that entail? Because you look at the News Hub website and it's like, okay, cool. Like I've looked at uh, some of the things that you do and it's like, okay, there's a team of reporters and she's obviously firing them off left, right and centre. But what does your job actually entail? Yeah, so as Features Editor, uh, I am responsible for sourcing my own exclusives um, and, or original content, um, and then there we have, a, we have a great digital team at News Hub mm-hmm. um, of really, really enthusiastic and very driven and smart reporters, um, and part of my job is to, if there's exclusives that I think would match their interests, then I'll assign the amount to them or ask them if they want to do them or, or if I'm running a series or something, then I'll ask them if they want to be involved in it. Um, and together we sort of, you know, try and generate strong content that is either informative, inspiring, motivating or educational. Those are sort of the four pillars that I am really passionate about mm-hmm. fitting between. Um, so it's really just coming up with stuff that that actually affects you know real New Zealanders. Yeah. Um, something that's going to make a difference in some way, move them, or teach them something that they don't know. 
Um, that is kind of the thing. So yeah, either for myself or others. Um, lately, I've been really lucky, and I if I if a, a story um, that I'm working on sort of has um, some bigger scope for multi-platforms than the um, television producers for, for, for News Hub, either News Hub Late or for News Hub at Six. Um, you know, they let me put it together for TV as well, so it can sort of cross um, platforms, which is, you know, a total advantage of, of being at three. And you sometimes get in front of the camera as well, because last time I saw you, you were at the... Van Gogh. Yeah, I took go down there, yeah. Yep. So yep. a few pieces to camera yep, and, uh, and amongst that. All that and then some. Right, uh, how do you decide or push the go button on something that you think will make a great feature? Because I'm betting when people find out what you do, it's like, well, Fee, have I got a great story for you? And you, I mean, yeah. So how do you decide what makes a great feature? You know, that that is a really good question. I think, um, first of all, the, the thing to think about is how many people are impacted by this. So is it an issue? Is it something that's affecting a lot of people that needs to change? Is there a result that can be sought from this? You know, is by talking about it going to benefit someone or something in some way? So, um, you know, for example, if, if someone comes to me and they've, they've got a, a situation that is unfair that sounds like it's not right and their and their life is being affected in a negative way and it could potentially happen to other people, that is something that straight away I want to talk about, you know, and I want to shine a light on issues, you know. Is it something that other people are going to be affected by in some way and does it need to change? Is there, Does there need to be awareness to, um, drawn to it to, to make a, you know, a better New Zealand? There, you know, New Zealand is this great, beautiful place, but we have a few, you know, dirty little secrets, yeah. and um, it's definitely not about exposing those, or you know, it's it's never political. It is always about looking at, at, at the facts and trying to present them in a way that you know that is absolutely neutral, goes you know as as fair and balanced and accurate. And um, you know has the power to, to raise awareness about something and and you know draw in public conversation or um, you know just actually make a difference I suppose. Right, so it's almost like you've read my next question. Mm-hmm. Guys, what's the, the one feature or story that you have been most proud of on your CV and why? I think I think it would come down to the little support stories. Early last year, I got an email from a you know twenty five year old woman who had just lost her mum to suicide, and she had responded to a, a, a segment in the that the AM show had done about bullying, about workplace bullying, and she said, um, "My mum was a victim of workplace bullying, and she took her own life, and you know you know we're devastated." And I went back to her and I said, oh my gosh, you know, I'm so sorry to hear that. You know, mm-hmm. can you tell me more? And we sort of got into this dialogue about, she, you know, she told me about her mum and and she really believed that the treatment that she suffered at the Littleton Port Company affected or impacted or contributed to her final decision to, to end her life. And over a few months, I worked with this girl and interviewed her and, you know, the work was extensive. I had to go to other employees to unions to the company itself mm-hmm. and and for a response and you know talk to family members of uh, outside of the daughter really try and 
paint a picture of why this happened. Mm-hmm. And um, I published the story eventually, and then I got about 25 emails <laughs> within 24 hours saying, you got, you really don't even know how bad it is. This is just the tip of the iceberg. And so I did another story and I interviewed all of, you know, a, a number of those people. And again, was really disappointed and, and saddened by just how difficult the working environment was, um, you know, being perceived to be at, at Littleton Port Company. And so I continued to sort of, um, do these stories and I guess put pressure on the company asking what is going on there? Mm. Why, why are all these people feeling like this? Why are these people struggling? Because the, the thing was at the end of the day, these people are just going to work to put food on the table for mm. their friends and their, you know, for their families and, and want a good life, live good lives. And then they were going to work and they were facing all sorts of issues. And I just, thought that that needed to be talked about Mm. and eventually um the company announced that they would do two investigations one into the death of um the woman that died her name was katrina hay and the second investigation was um into the company's culture and you know a a report was released a few months later by um, an independent qc maria dew and she found bullying, nepotism, sexism, homophobia, all these sorts of things. And um, she recommended 32 areas, uh, 32 points across five areas that needed to be changed. And they are now on a journey to try and change uh, their, 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 their company culture. And, you know, t- only time will tell whether they will be actually able to do that. I hope that they can. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it started just with one email and, um, you know, we actually got to see a real result and, um, you know, it doesn't, it's of no benefit to me. I just thought that, that that is how it should be. You know, we should be considering mental health and taking it seriously. Um, because if you don't, we have examples and cases where people cannot take it anymore. 100% 100% correct, and there's a pink shirt day, Ambassador. I fully appreciate your efforts, so thank you. Uh, do you worry, now that we've spoken about the pillars of the sort of fade of journalism, mm. do you worry, and I always ask this question when I have a journalist in the car, about the current trends in journalism, like you have clickbait, you have pseudo-truthful headlines that aren't quite sort of right there, uh, you have a fascination with celebrity. So, for instance, if you take... America um, with its COVID vaccines. We can't get enough people to have the vaccine. I know what we're going to do, and they've started to do it. They're running an advert campaign with celebrities saying, hey, it's all right, but look, let's be honest, between you, me, and the gatepost, and anybody who's got sort of slightly uh, a bit of an education, we know that most celebrities actually have no idea about the vaccines that are going into their arms, apart from a scientist who said, it's good for you. So do you worry about that as as when you've spoken about the integrity and wanting to inspire and educate and everything else, do you worry about that type of journalism? I absolutely do. I mean, it's a question, it's, it's funny you should ask. You know, I could sort of talk about this all day long. I do everything I can in my job to try and pre- prevent a lot of the content that you've just mm-hmm. been talking about. I spent two years before I uh, joined News Hub uh, working at the Daily Mail in Sydney and some of those headlines that you're talking about are, you know, what they do best. You know, mm-hmm. it's uh, 
definitely not um, ever fabricated, I would say, but the ability to um, transform, uh, you know, cells in, yeah. in headlines um, in certain ways uh, to appeal to a greater mass of people is, you know, a technique technique that they do very, very well. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, I like to think that we're getting away from that viral content and and that obsession with celebrity I don't see you know I, th- I think when um, you have music artists and you want to celebrate their music I think that that's great talk about their music I think that when you've got actors talk about their films talk mm-hmm. about their work mm-hmm. the idea of um, following people around and talking about their personal life and exposing mm-hmm. it is something that I am always really uncomfortable yeah. with yeah. and um, you know for me though it's it's like I'm in my role and I'm trying to do the best that I can to create you know um, content that I I can go to sleep at night standing by Um, I think that when we start to see a change across the board will will be when other people start recognising you know the, the same you know all sort of agreeing with the sort of ideas that I have about it but until then, um, you know, because it's sad because a lot of that doesn't necessarily generate huge traffic no. for, for the websites. Some of some of it will sometimes, but it's a very sort of like, you know, hit or miss situation. Yep. And so the amount of, you know, essentially garbage that you're just peddling to put onto the website for no reward at all. Yep. And yet you've, you're talking about someone who's actually got mental health, who's got children probably, who's got, you know, um, who knows, like, what what their anxiety or, you know, lack of appreciation for your talking about them is. All of those things never be seem to no. be considered when, yeah. when the likes of, you know, those big gossip magazines are running these really actually nasty stories. Mm-hmm. So I think that audiences are switching on to to, um, you know, that sort of uh, type of story. I like to think, you know, those clickbaity ones, I think there was a a sort of trend there for a while, but I don't think that it's something, well, I hope, (laughs) I hope it's something that we get away from as audiences become more uh, picky about where they're subscribing, what what they're taking in, and I think that the tolerance for it will... Will, will slowly just get smaller and smaller. Yeah, because I think, I mean, I know you've been overseas, I've been overseas as well, but uh, the majority of New Zealanders really don't care about celebrity, to be fair. No. Yeah, I mean, if they, like you say, if they, if they follow somebody on social media or it's their favourite band singer, they may know who they are, but to the average punter, they'll go, who's that? And that's such a good point. You know, if I, you know, I follow all of the celebrities or whatever that I like on social media, so for a news outlet to then take the social media posts that they're making and then regurgitate it into a news story mm-hmm. is sort of like double handling yeah. to me. I've already just got it direct from the source. So when you publish it a day later, you actually kind of look silly. Yeah. So I think there needs to be stuff like that taken into consideration. People who are subscribing to their favorite music artists and their favorite actors or whatever are going to be seeing those posts where they open up, open up about something relatable or where they share something from, you know, a private moment from their personal lives. We should be kind of getting that directly. And I hope that that's the direction that we sort of start to take. 
Right, here's, a, here's another tricky one for you then. Right. And again, I always ask this as well. When you see or hear a journalist presenting facts on the news or um, um, a radio show or something else, and then they do a sort of flip and they do an infomercial, um, is there, or an opinion piece in a paper, for instance, that's kind of trumped as news, but it's an opinion piece, do you sit there and does it sort of irk you or does it sort of worry you that the fact that we're doing it? Do you think it's getting too blurred? I spoke to Sasha McNeil about this when I did a podcast with her and she said years ago when she started off, even, the, even though she's only 26, uh, she sort of said, you know, we were told that we were only allowed to do X, Y and Z and she said our opinion never came into it. Um, and she said sometimes it gets a little bit blurred. So do you agree with that or don't agree? Um, you know, I think that, I don't think that there is much room for opinion in journalism, but I do think that there are some exceptions. So I think that when a journalist, um, you know, if, if I've just spoken extensively about the Littleton Port story, so I'll use that mm-hmm. as an example. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, if I was to, you know, that story, when that review came out, that was covered by every major publication. If I, if I felt in the moment like I should, and I nearly sort of wrote a, an, an opinion piece about why that was important to happen, mm-hmm. why it needed to happen. I think my voice in that situation is relevant because I know the back history of that case more than anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I can sort of verify, verify myself as an expert and therefore maybe talk, not necessarily... Um, you know, you have to toe a line. I don't mm-hmm. think you can be speaking, you know, um, too too freely. But I think if you have an important feeling about a, how a certain thing should have gone or, or why, it, why it matters, to give context, an opinion piece might be relevant. But, um, you know, I can't think of many examples off the top of my head where where journalists do often often their opinion too much. I mean, I know we see it on a lot of radio. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's kind of a different kettle of fish. I I don't think you know. For, I mean, I think it just depends what kind of writer you want to be as well, or or TV journalist. I, for TV especially, I don't see a lot of opinion no. um, being relevant there. And in terms of, um, I mean, except for the stuff like the, the AM show, or I mean, the. the there is a time and a place yep. for it, yep. um, but I think within a certain boundary, um, you know, I don't think that um, it's it should be abused in, in terms of speaking out against something or trying to convince people of a certain feeling or emotion no. or whatever. I think if you're justifying something or genuinely sharing your thoughts, maybe it's okay. You know, I saw a... Um, so quite a hideous. Well, I thought it was quite hideous. I saw a a, 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 a guy coming up Franklin Road on a scooter, um, and he kind of this Uber kind of went around the corner and nearly struck him down. I mean, it was not that close, but enough to scare the bejesus out of the scooter driver. And the scooter driver yelled at him and said something, you know, which I considered to be unnecessary, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, I thought about, you know, so moved in the moment, I thought about sort of writing, yep. writing a piece, you know, can we cut that out? Yeah, you yeah. know, can we not do that? Yeah. But, you know, I thought, I thought against it yep. and decided uh, not to, but I don't know, uh, there is a time, there is some times where it might be relevant, but yep. I think it's, um, you know, on sort of a case case by case basis. I mean, look, let's be honest, that's your job, isn't it? So, I mean, uh, but it's... 
by the same token, you don't want to, like you said, radio, for instance, you don't want to be doing um, an expose or an amazing story on something, and then the next moment you have, um, and Fiat is talking about buying homes from a certain home company or using the stockbroker or that type of stuff. What do you think is the biggest threat to journalistic integrity? Um, when I look at places, well, other networks from overseas in particular, you know, they've already come in with an agenda, um, and I'm looking at it and I'm going, how could you be a news provider? You're not really impartial. So when you look at those networks or things that are happening overseas, do you think to yourself, jeepers, is that what you think? Or It's funny, and I don't mind embarrassing myself here because it's, it's, just, it's just how I am. You yeah. know, I... <laughs> I wrote a story once, I can't even remember what it was, and someone commented on it saying, this girl must be right wing. And I wanted to comment back on it saying, I don't actually know the difference between left wing and right wing. <laughs> I have no idea, I have no political standpoint. Like, yeah. I just go with whatever is, you know, whatever I feel in the moment. You know, yeah. I don't really have this like staunch, staunch thing. And I kind of think that that's how news outlets should be as well. I don't yeah. think that they should be. And I've never, you know, especially in my time at, at News Hub, I've never experienced, you know, I can, I, especially with my job, I can literally go in there tomorrow and I can write about whatever I want. Mm-hmm. It could even be an opinion piece if I felt so passionately about it and I was able to convince my editor that it was worth yeah. worth the space on the page. But, you know, there isn't any um, restrictions around content. Right. In terms of you know anything, <laughs> and so and I think that that's really important, um, and I I think that as long as you've got people in the jobs who who genuinely are there for the right reasons and they do have you know some um, pillar that they're trying to trying to stick to, um, hopefully it'll be okay. But I think the the biggest threat is is sort of a combination of that that. That viral content, that desperation for traffic, is when you see that, um, and that celebrity world as well. And and you know, I think if, if politics was to leak into it, I think that would be really a really terrible thing as well. But I think in New Zealand, we're not quite there yet, especially the organisation no. I work for. I don't, yeah. I don't see a lot of that. I, I generally think it's quite well balanced. Um, and that's kind of how it should should be, I think. That left wing, left wing, right wing theory. I had it explained to me once like this. I think it's great. A bird can't fly with just one wing, so we need both. Is it? Ah, okay, that's pretty <laughs> cool. All right. Um, how satisfying was it for you when you break a story like Littleton Ports? Like personally, I know that it's not. Well, it, it is your journey because you you were the person that sort of um, not sparked the fire, but you certainly fanned it. That's for sure. And how personally satisfying is it when you nail a story like Littleton Ports? I think, I think, I think there's a lot of people who say, "Oh no, it's you know, it's just part of the job." But I, I would be totally lying if I said it's it's not that it's satisfying. It's that knowing that I'm in a position where I can use my job to do good. That's all that matters for to me. Mm-hmm. Like that is the biggest thing. You know, I say to people when I'm writing these stories, you know, like gaining their trust and make, you know, allowing our relationship to 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 be one of 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 mutual respect and and everything is like is like the biggest priority for me. And so, when you when you have story, you know, I did one about this woman 
um, she'd been this Kiwi guy. His 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 wife, I think it was, was to, was sent back to the UK, mm-hmm. and Immigration New Zealand had just had just didn't make a decision fast enough. And then she was sitting at an airport in a f- stopover in Hong Kong, and they reversed the decision. She got to come back, and it was like this, you know, oh my God, your stories did that, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. a, and that pressure, and that that is not something that I take lightly. No. And so when I do get those results um, and things change because of my interest in it or whatever. You know, I, I, I don't think I'm proud of it in a sense, but I, I definitely am aware of it. Yeah. And it, it, if anything, it ignites this like weird internal fuel to want to do even more of that and to, to want to, you know, be a positive difference in people's lives. Like that's genuinely it. Yeah. Nice work, yeah. <laughs> How long did it take you from woe to go for that Littleton Port story so that people have got somewhere there? Because you've explained it and you've sort of said, oh, I got sent an email. Mm. Um, and then you've said, you know, next thing you know, there was an inquiry and everything else, which, to be fair, um, probably is an edited, edited, edited highlights package. But in total, how, how many sort of months did it take you to go from way to go and for everybody to pick up on it and go right there's something in this um i think it took about it took probably three months to get from uh cassandra hayes first email to publishing and that's just simply because when you're doing a story like that you really have to be sure when you're about to accuse a, a, a company of of, of not having procedures in place that could have prevented a, a loss of life, you need to be really, really sure that you've done your homework. And so that was probably the biggest priority, just talking to as many people. And, of course, I'm not from there. I don't know anyone down there. No. So, I, you know, I have to find those people yeah. myself. Took two, you know, two trips um, over, the, over the space of what I think was about nine months between uh, the first story coming out and the investigation results hmm. coming out. Okay. So so there's probably four stories in that time, five even. Yeah. Um, so I think Littleton Port announced the company review relatively quickly, I think maybe in July, August off the top of my head. Yeah. I think they wanted it done by September. I don't think it came out until November. Hmm. Okay. What's been your best interview ever, do you think? Because I know that you've interviewed... Uh, lots of lots of musicians. You've done a couple of celebrity chefs there, I saw as well. A few other events. What's been the interview you've walked away from and gone, nailed it, or you know that was really cool fun. Um, you know, I think if, if, not to sound too silly, but you know, you do learn from these mm-hmm. things. Um, there's been a few where I've where I've come out learning things mm-hmm. and that's always something that I, I value as much as the ones where I come out feeling really cool or something like that. <laughs> um, Zane Lowe is someone who I've always been very inspired by. He's a, a Kiwi who um, went over to work in London. He was working for BBC uh, Radio 1 and now he's with um, Beats 1 for Apple Music. And he's, you know, he is the go-to guy of, uh, you know, music artist interviews. And he, the, what makes him so great is the way that he engages in this dialogue with artists. And it's not about, you know, what they got up to in the weekend or what yeah. their favorite, 
you know, food is, it's like talking about the music. It's always about the music and it's always about the creative creativity. Mm-hmm. And it's always about something so much deeper than, um, you know, who they're, who they're going to bed with at night. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, that's what really matters. I've interviewed him three times and he always gives me really positive feedback and, and really, you know, um, boosts me up and, yeah. and it's, it's an incredible, um, feeling to, to have someone like that who you look up to, who's essentially in your corner. Um, Robbie Williams, I learned something just to drop his name. Um, I learned something really interesting. We we had 20 minutes on the phone and you know, the interview was going so, so well, and it was a great chat, but after about 15 minutes, he does answer the questions so well, he knew, you know, he knows how to answer questions, he does this stuff all the time, after about 15 minutes, I'd ran out of all my questions, and I really did not have any other questions for him, but I've still got five minutes on the phone with Robbie Williams, so am I just going to tell him, okay, well, have a great afternoon, (laughs) no, I'm going to continue just yarning, and so I sort of yarned to him like I might have been chatting to a friend and you know I was kind of asking him things you know that I really just wanted to know for my own self and he'd been on the Graham Norton show the other day and just recently before that and I started talking to him about being on the Graham Norton show and stuff that was so not pertinent for the interview a conversation he welcomed but was unnecessary and um you know, these days, <laughs> I could do the interview in two minutes, and I'll say, "See ya." <laughs> like it's, you know, you uh, don't you don't k- keep the chat going just for the sake of talking. Yeah. And that was something that I um I found really important advice to continue through. Uh, have you ever suffered a fangirl moment when you knew that you'd landed or you were going to do an interview with somebody famous? I, I, I actually suffer these moments all the time because, as it, as we say, you know, I choose my own stories. Okay. So if there is someone coming to the country or there's someone that I just really like, I will interview them. There's, um, I, I won't say who they are just because I don't want to speak out of turn, but I recently got approached by um, one of my favourite Australian... One of my favourite sort of music groups of all time. Mm-hmm. They're these, um, this band from Australia. And their music label approached me recently and asked them if I could write their bio for them, for their website. They need a new bio. And they remembered me from an interview from five years ago. This was like just the other week. I'm like, five years ago. (laughs) And let me tell you, when I got that email, it was a huge fangirl moment because the fact that I even know who I am, let alone, you know, see value in my work, was... Something that, you know, really, as I say, continues me on this path of trying to do the best that I can and motivates me to take that leap to hit up the next person, you know. So much of what I've been able to do has only happened because I believed that it could. And that is kind of uh, something that I've just lived by. (laughs) You, oh, hang on, before we get there, Hmm. your worst interview ever. Who and what? Uh, so I'll give you one of the, my guests on the show had an interview. I won't mention any names. You can go and find out who it was. Had an interview with Hugh Grant, and she <sighs> said at the time she walked in, and as you do, you know, you, you get a press moment, you get your allotted six, seven minutes. He's promoting a movie, and she said you could tell that his tank was full. He'd had enough, and he was pretty much done for the day. And she said I asked all these questions, and I got sort of monosyllable answers, and that was pretty much it. Have you ever had one of those moments where you thought just 
dig a hole and bury myself and get out of here. Yeah, like sometimes people don't interview very well, and that can be challenging. Sometimes it can be really hard to get the answers out that you want from people, especially for TV. With online, people can sort of take 20 minutes to say one sentence, and and it's still going to read as one sentence. On TV, when they're doing that, and they've just strung out, you know, a, a sentence syllable by syllable, it doesn't make for great watching, so it makes it quite... Well, in my experience, it was more challenging to put the story together. Mm-hmm. I'd say the one person, and I bless her soul, uh, who I who I really struggled to uh, to to find um, cohesion with would be uh, Susan Boyle, and that is purely because of the point that she was at in her career, mm-hmm. and she was quite fresh off of winning. Um, BGT. Yeah. Yep. And I just, I think to be thrown into that world so quickly, it was very obvious that she, that she was sort of undergoing some sort of media training. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she'd obviously been told not to not to give too much away or not to talk too long. So she'd kind of give you these, like, couple of sentence answers, or if, if that, you know, few words sometimes even, and... And I just, it wasn't that it was a bad interview. I just left me, I just, when I finished talking to her, I felt really, just made me see things in a, in a sort of new light. I felt um, not sympathetic, but I, I felt, um, it just sort of opened my eyes to to how challenging, you know, talking to a random stranger in New Zealand on the other side mm-hmm. of the world must be. Um, but it just it just didn't make for a strong interview you know I wanted to use that opportunity to really tell her story you know who was she how had this changed your life you know what will you do now and um to yes we we weren't really singing from the same hymn book and yet I bet if you spoke to her now it would be like a completely different person almost and I genuinely believe so Yeah, yeah yeah and I've had that experience with uh, famous sports people uh, and also entertainers who when I first met them if I got more than a six word sentence I was really lucky mm. uh, and now they can basically free flow for 15 minutes and I'm like well uh, just looking for a quick answer on that one but hey look that's all good um, okay you do a large amount of stories on and interviews with musicians in particular or you have done in the past so who's your favourite all time band or singer Kiwi or otherwise uh, and who should we be keeping an eye on if you've got your finger on the pulse. Ooh, who should we be keeping an eye on? Harper Finn, I think, yeah. is someone that we should be keeping a, 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 an eye on. He, um, obviously coming from the very famous family um, with his um, uncle and dad of the Finn brothers' fame. Um, you know, I interviewed Harper the other day and he he is such a true artist He's a true, true music artist in the way that he creates. You know, he starts with the instrumental of his songs and he writes the lyrics. He comes up, he visualizes the whole concept of, of what his his video package is going to look like, of what he wants it to look like, the colors. He thinks thinks in all these sorts of different ways. And um, I was really impressed with not only his sound that mm-hmm. he delivers, but also just him in the way that he holds himself, the way he answers his questions, the way that he... Um, you know, is 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 trying, you know, seamlessly, effortlessly. Surely not, but he's really coming across um, 
you know, as his own true artist. Yeah. And and it's really, really inspiring and and exciting for him. Cool. All right. So your latest new sub feature is on the land of, as, as I'm going to call it, the land of neurodiversity, or for those that don't know what neurodiversity is, autism spectrum disorder, which, uh, before we go any further, I have uh, a family member on the ASD spectrum, and as I was once told, we're all on the spectrum, uh, so let's not worry about it, right? So, how did that happen? Because, look, let's be fair, um, unless you are part of that neighbourhood, I'm going to say, it's something which very often we don't have much experience with, despite the fact that there are an awful lot of people who are neurodiverse um, in the community. It's just sort of one of those things where if we see, for instance, a little child who's got um, ASD, we might go, oh, it's a bit odd, a bit quirky, and that's pretty much it. So how did it all come about? So at the end of last year, uh, I was contacted by a woman who has an autistic five-year-old, and he... Uh, he he perceives the world differently, so he he has uh, ASD, and he's um, just really, you know, they'll be going out into the supermarket, and the lights will be mm-hmm. too bright, or um, he get itchy, or too hot in the car, so he'll try and throw himself out there. All these different things, um, just in terms of the way that his brain operates, um, that is perceived or, um, you know, diverse from from what is um, perceived as uh, neurotypical. So she wrote to me and she said, look, there is an, not enough resources. There is not enough funding. Please, you know, can you can you talk about this? And I read her email and, I, I you know, I, I could see almost immediately that there was something that really needed to be talked about here. And so, you know, I interviewed her and... You know, it was hard to hear about the struggles and the challenges that she as a mother was facing, you know, by no fault of her own or her child's, um, you know, things were more difficult for her than they are for, um, you know, a a neurotypical family Mm -hmm. or a neurotypical child. And I just really thought to myself, like, it should not be this hard for, you know, and I I don't have any personal experience. with, with anyone who's autistic or um, has ADHD or any of the sort of diversities that, that, that come under this umbrella. But I really believe that every child should have an, an equal opportunity for an education mm-hmm. and as, you know in New Zealand. So I, I, I went back to her, we did the interview, we, I wrote the story and I, and I happened to follow this and be in, be in this um, autis, autism parents and caregivers group on Facebook um, that I think I'd been joined to um, from, a, from a previous job and was probably speaking to a parent. And I, I posted the story there and said, you know, hey, I hope this is okay. You know, I've just written this story, you know, just wondering if anyone else has this experience. Has, it, has these experiences and that I was overwhelmed with the responses mm-hmm. I had so many messages there were so many comments on the post and although very different experiences the um, you know the sort of challenges that these parents were facing were, were very similar mm-hmm. so they sort of came under three different sort of categories which was education getting diagnosed and support and funding mm-hmm. And it just became 
so evident that there were so many people in this country who were affected by this and really needing more help. So, you know, I talked to my, my editor, Mark, about it, and he has a, a son who's uh, autistic, and we just decided that this would be something that we could that we could focus on. Um, and so, you know, eventually I started, you know, finding the stories, finding the talent, you know, in terms of these parents that wanted to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these people that I was speaking with didn't, they wanted these stories heard, but they didn't want to be, you know, personally associated with yep. it in a way that was going to, you know, potentially cause any further frustration or further, um, you know, putting their child under a spotlight any more than, mm-hmm. than what it needed to be. So we sort of, you know, eventually I got to a space where, you know, we had enough people that wanted to talk and, and enough ideas around the series and we got the team together and, um, you know, assigned out these these different talking points. And um, so far, yeah, we've, we've launched, we've done eight stories. Um, you know, we're supposed to do ten, but... I've, again the response has been so huge that we are going to just keep them rolling and um, you know for at least the next week and just keep reporters on the new stories that are coming through everyone's getting emails you know 10 15 emails a day mm-hmm. from these parents who need help yeah. <laughs> and it's so important there just shouldn't be that many people struggling I hear you uh, what's the one thing that shocked you the most about your journey? I'm going to call it the land of neurodiversity. I'm not being smart there or anything else, but it kind of is a, a land because it's a different, I always say to people, it's a different sort of footing than the rest of the world. Um, and I'm not saying the uh, neurotypical are right and the neurodiverse are wrong, but what's been the biggest thing that shocked you the most about your sort of journey into the land? I think it's the... Um you know, we, we called this the Minefield series. Yeah. Um, I yeah, think the, the biggest... irony wasn't lost on me just quietly. Yeah. 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 I think the the biggest thing is just um, well, there's a couple of things. The way that people perceive and, and and are aware or not or choose to not be aware of this as an issue in New Zealand mm-hmm. is something that surprises me. Um, you know, I, in my experience, it is really hard to make Kiwis care about things that don't personally affect them. So when I've focused previously on people with disabilities you know there's not the the, the people's reaction is not to go oh yes when they don't have a relative or a friend who is who has a disability. Mm -hmm. And it's very similar with this you know if we want if we wanted to create a series that was going to pull in big traffic numbers and do really well analytically, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be this. Because people, it takes so much time, and, and that's why we've tried to go you know, really hard on it, mm-hmm. to try and drum up as, as much awareness as possible and get people caring. Because just naturally, when given the choice, when they've got the celebrity gossip on oh, the yeah. other page, yeah. it's really hard to make them choose to, to be invested into something that they're probably going to feel, you know, shit about when yep. they finish reading because it's not fair no exactly <laughs> so so it's you know it's it's diff- it's a difficult challenge to, to to create these stories in a way but i think the education thing is is a huge huge part of what surprised me but just how you know just how you know just the waiting lists and 
how difficult it is for people to get diagnosed and like all, all of it was surprising and that's why I think I was so interested mm-hmm. in it because yeah it just it, it shouldn't be like that to, right. you know but you know we don't live in a perfect utopian society no. and I don't think that we should either but I don't think that someone should wait over a year to access care for a child who 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 is talking about self-harming or who um, is not learning in a classroom as well as um, with you know with 27 students versus the three that they need to be you know right I'm going to put you on the spot now I've spoken to lots of people within the ND community um, and who, who have read your articles, they've read them on News Hub and everything else, and gone, uh huh, yep, 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 okay, mm, cool, no worries. Um, if I made you galactic overlord for the day, all right, what would you do to make the situation better? Do you think if I gave you unlimited budget, all the powers in the world, you could do whatever you want apart from lockdown because we're all sick of that that journey. What, would, what do you think would be the best start? I think we need to start creating spaces, safe spaces for, for students who, um, who, 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 have, who learn differently to other people mm-hmm. and, and, and stop sort of applying this one-size-fits-all, let's you know, get the kids into the classroom, hunky-dory, um, here's a whiteboard, here's a OHD projector, yep. and let's go. I think that um, considerations need to be made for um, you know, the sensitivities that we are seeing some of these kids have. And, um, you know, there are schools that are trying to initiate programs to cater for these types of students. So I think putting them into, um, putting putting funding into into those would be a great start. You know, establishing some more. Mm-hmm. Um, really looking at the numbers and thinking, how many people does this affect? Mm. And what are we doing to help as many of those, if not all, as possible? I think, you know, I spoke to a mother the other day and, you know, as I say, I'm certainly not an expert in it. My intel is only coming from the parents that I'm speaking to and the organizations that we've been working with mm-hmm. um, to, you know, who directly are, are working with, with members of these communities who live with autism or are autistic or live with ADHD or have ADHD, you know, just to include all the terminologies terminologies that that exist and are relevant to different people but i think listening to to their needs is, is probably the biggest biggest thing from what i can hear those needs are falling into three spaces across support funding and and the diagnose getting diagnosed and the education realm i think we really need to be actually establishing a team of people who can look at this closely, mm-hmm. find where the gaps are, and start actually putting you know time and money into into fixing it. And that comes from the Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Education, and 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 the relevant decision makers who are just sort of essentially turning a blind eye to this at the moment. As I was going to say, I spoke to a mum the other day who said that there is you know New Zealand is not keeping up with. The rapid rate of of new di- of of those that are diagnosed uh, versus the the resources and the funding, mm. and so if it's going the other way, this is just going to get worse and worse yeah. and worse. And so many people are, are really facing challenges daily, and these parents need help. Yeah, exactly right. Um, if you want to look at a country that seems to be doing it a lot better than us, Canada is really good um, from my own personal experience. So there are. Many stories of people who have got who are neurodiverse 
with amazing gifts, which is often to the annoyance of the rest of the community. I mean, I know kids, for instance, who are neurodiverse, they're non-verbal. Right? They don't have an amazing gift. They can't look at an aircraft and put it back together screw by screw, um, plate by plate, etc., etc. Um, we look at some of the neurodiverse people in, I'm going to say the entertainment world, you've got Rain Man, you've got The Good Doctor, um, was that a real danger with some of the features that you're doing? Because sometimes when you, when media look at people who are in that world, they very often fake, focus on their savant abilities and not much more. I mean, there's lots of people I know in the neuro- neurodiverse world who, for instance, can look at a plane going past in the sky and go, oh, that's XYZ, and even probably tell you the year it was constructed. But yet if I said to them, this is my friend Fiona, I just need you to chat to her for two or three minutes while I go across her and get a cup of coffee. It's like I'm asking them to scale Mount Everest. So was that a danger for you? Yeah, and it was something that we really tried to actively avoid. And I think we 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 did succeed, though. Although I think, you know, as we were talking about before, you're never going to be able to no. please everyone. Yep. You know, we, uh, as part of this Minefield series, I organised for... Um, the organ, uh, Altogether Autism um, National Manager and um, a performing arts uh, student to go on, who who is autistic, to go on the AM show. Yeah, sure, it was good. Yeah, really good. and well, part of what he was saying is his lived experience. Is he's saying, you know, autism is my superpower. That was his sort of thing. He was yep. really trying to be positive about this and saying, yeah, yeah, it makes me potentially different but it's something that um you know doesn't doesn't uh you know that i could have let stop me in some in some ways you know i don't think it's really that straightforward for everyone but in his experience you know there were there were things that he was able to accept about the fact that he was autistic and what it meant for him and he was choosing to look at it at, at those you know differences as a good thing. And someone in the comments wrote um, something about uh, something about you know oh what utter bullshit yeah um, autism is not a superpower it's um, it's all the, it's stress day and day out like all these different things um, and. I felt bad for him because mm-hmm. it's really hard to, but he he was just choosing to look at it that way and and celebrate it as opposed to not celebrate it or or be down about it, and he was still being criticised and just because he said it was a superpower, I don't think that means that there wasn't hard days or that he wasn't struggling at some point. Yeah, but they they didn't look at it like that, yeah. and that's been something that's been hard about this series yeah. when when. So much so, the the overwhelming reaction has been so positive. Yeah. And then there's just a couple of people that are, I don't know, seem to be looking at what you're trying to, you know, we're trying to do good thing mm-hmm. and, and trying to make a difference. But it's still, you know, I guess anything's up for criticism yeah. these days. Yeah, I mean, that, there's a reason it's a spectrum, I guess. Um, what's been the reaction of the general public so far to the the articles and the 
the the story that you did on the AM show. What what have the comments been like that you good? Received? Like everyone's you know the 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 comments mostly. I mean, there has been plenty of thank yous and and we really appreciate this. But actually, what there has been mostly is people sharing their own stories. Mm-hmm. There was over two hundred and fifty comments on the AM show Facebook post that News Hub put up, mm-hmm. and so many of them were people sharing their own experiences. And most of that was from a first-person voice. So my son, my daughter, my brother, you know, or then there was others, you know, I know someone with. Or, mm-hmm. But it was very, very interesting just how many people this does affect. Mm-hmm. And that was what was so evident in the uh in, in the response, just the the reaction of so many people coming forward. I had, you know, probably 25 Facebook messages, 20 emails. Others have had 10 to 15 emails. People are really making a big effort to get in touch. Yeah. Um, what about your reporters and your co-workers? Because very often when you talk about um, you might have a relative that's neurodiverse or they see a story or something else, somebody sort of three or four cubicles along goes, oh, actually, my niece is autism or have you found that yeah yeah there were there were people at work who, who that applied to um and i think that that's i think that the, the way that you can mediate that is i guess operate operating with the best of intentions yeah uh you know operating with sensitivity mm-hmm. accepting that you don't know everything and that you you know this is a very very new subject for me to even be le- i'm learning yeah. about it yeah, as yeah. i'm trying yeah. to as I'm trying to tell people about it. So it's a pretty difficult space to be operating in. Yeah. Um, and I guess it's, you know, it's trying to really remind people of that, you know, like, um, you know, if there's something that needs to be changed or is wrong, like, please let me know. Yeah. But don't, you know, I feel like we're so critical. So, you know, and so I think everyone in that work environment is very aware that we are genuinely trying to do something that has the power to make an impact yeah. and um you know there were conversations but some of those conversations they just actually ended up opening up and were if anything more motivating because they knew exactly what we were talking about yeah. so do you think like from a media perspective i'm asking now do you think what do you think is the reason that neurodiverse people struggle so much to get their stories heard um there's a famous and i can't remember for the life of me um lecturer who also had ASD who said like one of the things you have to remember is if you meet one person who's on the ASD who has got ASD then all you've really done is just meet one person who's got ASD we're all different it's a yeah. spectrum for a reason do you think that's part of the problem do you think it's because everybody's journey is different and whereas if you put it into another category let's say something uh, I'm going to say uh, uh, possibly another disability I won't name a disability but where there's sort of a, a common denominator there. Um, do you think it's just that difficulty? So like we've spoken about before, you know, you have some people who are, who are light sensitive, others who are sound sensitive. You've got others who have got sens- um, sensory processing disorder, so they're like pressure and weighted blankets and that type of stuff. Do you think that's the issue, the, the big issue? That we're not talking, that, they, that yeah, some that get more coverage than others? Or think? just the fact that really um, the community can't actually present a united front because everybody's journey is so different um, and you can't just look at it and go oh okay well so Fiona's got autism and it means this this and this do you think that's the that's the problem 
I think, so to speak. Yeah. Well, in terms of media actually yeah. paying attention yeah. to this, I mean, I think it. I think it really comes down to, as journalists, you only are able to cover what you know and what or what you are um, made aware of. Yeah. Someone sought me out to speak about their autistic child because they believed that there were things that needed to change mm-hmm. that affected a whole community of people who were who who have children or who live on you know on the spectrum. And I guess um, I guess until you know I, I encourage people to contact journalists if they have issues. Yeah. The more people that the more issues that we're made aware of, the better. Yeah. Um. But you know, it's it can't be a one size fits all approach for sure. But you know, and that's why I guess we're trying to break up um, the the examples that we're using into the into the more issue based uh, approach as opposed to the um, diagnosis re- approach, yeah. like you know, categorizing it up. But um, you know, that's why it's also we can only sort of share one story at a time. Yeah. Um, you can't just sort of like bunch them all together and be like, hey, well, this person has this, this person has this, and this person has this, because every every voice is important, every experience is is, is very relevant, and mm-hmm. um, I think that's why it's really important before doing anything, any stories about any one experience, you have to speak to a collective voice and and make sure that what that one person is representing or portraying is truly accurate. Yeah. But I think when you're actually telling the story, I think it's okay to um, to be using the one person's experience and one example, and then sort of using that as a platform to talk about more and more and more and more. Yeah. But um, yeah, it, it 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 can't just be like you know one story for the entire community. No. no. What's been your biggest learning personally out of your journey into neurodiversity land? I think, I think a few. Th- I mean, there's there's sensitivity, like it's and and you know it's it's and it's so sensitive at times. It's almost like, you know, do you want to be talking about your interest or, you know, I live in a, a you know, I'm really conscious and and um, nervous about offending someone mm-hmm. when not wanting to. Mm-hmm. Um, so learning learning words and, and what words to use and what to stay away from is, is a big thing. And I think just how serious and widespread the issues are yeah. will, is going to be the biggest learning point out of this. Um, so many people are struggling in New Zealand because there is not enough funding, not enough resources, and not enough educational options for for, for, for children that are on the spectrum yeah. and um, that should be a concern that we all share mm-hmm. not wrong um, how long does your feature run on News Hub for? it'll live vicarious it'll live on the internet for the for, for forever the, and a day yeah so if we go just go to the News Hub uh, site and type in your name or type in Minefield yeah, so on the News Hub homepage right now, there's a there's a mine seri- minefield series belt, mm-hmm. and so that just under the trending news, um, and that's got all of the stories that we're going to be rolling out for probably the next two weeks, um, and then they will live 
um, if you just Google News Hub Neurodiversity, we've created a landing page. Nice. And they'll all they all go there. Perfect. Okay. Uh, I know journalists, you're always one step ahead of the pack. Have you got your next feature planned after your feature on neurodiversity finishes? You yeah, I'm have. working on like five stories right now. Right. You <laughs> yeah. want to tell us or are you just going to pop up? Um, and that's okay to say no. We're all cool with that. You know, what I will say is that um, there, there is a lot of work to be done within the mental health considerations across all ports around New Zealand. Yes. And also um, making sure that we are providing health healthy and safe environments so yep. um if, if, there's, okay, if there's not any ports doing that yeah, then I, yeah. they should um be on notice as a, as a men's health ambassador i hear you with that one mm. uh, that's all good okay so the last question we always ask our guests is this it's the day of your eulogy and you happen to be yeah everybody does that when they go Woo! Yeah. uh the day of your eulogy you happen to be in the casket but you can hear what people are saying about you right now apart from your best mates uh partners or anybody else who normally are going to say something crude lewd and probably sort of you know uh i'm just trying to think of the movie where liam neeson plays the bay city rollers because that's what his wife wants i'm gonna say it was love actually but anyway what would you like people to say about fiona if you could not put words into their mouth but help them so to speak that's a good question. I like that. Um, I just, I just genuinely hope that that people can see my like really authentic efforts to to want to make a difference. Like that, I you know, just really went went after things, chased chased down my my dreams and my goals, and and tried to to make a good impact. That 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 had a positive effect on people that's all I really want can't argue with that and with that Fiona Connor you have survived the Cappuccino podcast well done Cappuccino with Constable Brian real people real stories make sure you subscribe so you don't miss his next podcast